Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Michael Gene Sullivan, who is the playwright of The Great Con, which is at San Francisco Playhouse through November 13th. It's also available through their website, sfplayhouse.org, again through November 13th. Michael Gene Sullivan is the resident playwright of the San Francisco Mime Troupe, He has been in several plays all across the Bay Area and nationally, and since 1988, a principal member of the San Francisco Mime Troupe, resident playwright for the Playwrights Foundation. Are you still that? I actually just finished my residency with the Playwrights Foundation. The Great Con was the last thing I did that that worked through their system. Also a director of several shows most of them at the Mime Troupe, and many of them shows that he wrote, including several musicals. The Great Con, how did that begin? You know, as a resident playwright for the Mime Troupe, each year, kind of, we get together and we discuss things, and generally I or someone will will pitch an idea to the collective, and then I will go off and write the play, but it's based on something that, an issue that we feel very strongly about. With The Great Con, this was a show that it was kind of in my head in different forms for the last like five years, you know, different things about propaganda, about, you know, as a black person, how we are defined by the country, how we are told we're supposed to be, the different stereotypes, the violence, and how hard it is to be a teenager growing up in a very difficult time when you're being told who you are rather than just being able to express yourself. And so I'd had this show in my head. And then I started working on it right before the pandemic, before the shutdown. And I was in Houston at the Alley Theater. They were doing my 1984 adaptation. So the show was just getting ready to open. And they said, just out of curiosity, what else do you have? And so I told them the concept of this show and how it starts. And they were like, that's amazing. You should write that. We would love to have this show of yours, The Great Con, in our new play festival. And I said, okay. And I came back to San Francisco and I went into rehearsal as an actor for Ragtime down at Theater Works. We had like five rehearsals, five days of rehearsals. And then uh, Robert Kelly, who was the director and artistic director still at the time, walked in and just said, everybody go home. We're going to pay you for the next two weeks, which was wonderful. And they did not have to do that. So everybody went back to their corners. And I knew I had about maybe a month and a half before I had to start writing the Mime Troops summer radio plays, which we were going to do since everything was shut down. So I had six weeks of sitting here and I decided I should go ahead and write The Great Con. When you talked about the idea, without giving away plot, what was the idea that you now had to flesh out? Well, I had these two different ideas. One was my wife, Valina Brown, who plays the mother in the show. She and I have a son. You know, he's a gamer and he's in high school at the time. 
what I realized was the difficulty, again, of being a black teenager with the expectations of the stereotypes around you. Oh, do you play football? Do you play basketball? You must be into rap. You must do this. Of course, there's the school to prison pipeline. All of these different stereotypical things that are put on boys, as well as black girls being pre-sexualized. You know, you got a black girl who's like 10 years old getting hit on by guys and, and this idea that, oh, they must be kind of already having sex. All of these different things that black teenagers don't get that space to be teenagers. They're kids, and then they're treated like grown-ups. They're treated like dangerous runaway slaves. They went from being cute to being dangerous to society. And so I had this idea of trying to find some way to have these two characters who are not stereotypical, they're just nerds, and they want to be teenagers. And at the same time, I'm very interested in history. I studied history in college. And my wife pointed out to me that there was this book about Genghis Khan. <laughs> I'd read a review of the book and I was like, I got to get that someday. And then she said, it's on sale. So I bought it like four or five years ago. And uh, I read it and I was like, I need to write something about this. And then I realized that the demonization that happens for blacks or Latinos or Asians or different groups, you know, the, the Polish, the Irish, all of these different victims of propaganda that they have to struggle with their whole lives. And then at the same time, Genghis Khan is kind of across the board. Everybody says, well, this, he's the worst. He's the most violent. He's, we all think we know what he was like, and he was awful. So reading this book, which was actually more based on the way he really was and the times he lived in, and I was like, he has been the victim of that propaganda. And so wanting this principal character, Jaden, to kind of focus on Genghis Khan as the baddest guy ever, but then realize that history is more complex than that. And who told him that this was the baddest guy ever, the worst, the most villainous? It's the same mechanism that's telling Jaden that the way he should be, the way that he should be a gangster rapper, the, the way that he should be in society. So I wanted to write something that was about really consider the source of the information that you have. Consider the source of who's telling you who you are to you and who you are to the rest of society. So that's more or less what you told the people down in Texas, and they said, great, write it. Yes. Yeah. Now we move up to the pandemic, and you actually have to go, I better write this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it was like they shut down their theater. My 1984, I mean, it's been running around the world, and it's in a bunch of languages and stuff, So, but it was finally going to play at a big American Lort theater. And it closed the day after opening because they had to shut down their theater. Now, they put it online, and it ran around the world, which was actually super cool and got great reviews. But they were like, okay, what are we going to do? Let's ask Michael to write this other play. I went through it really quickly, and then I got back in touch with them, and they said, well, we're canceling our next new play program, so we don't know when we're going to do that again. And so I started doing readings online last summer, and then the Playwrights Foundation said, well, we want to produce one of your readings. And I said, oh, great. That's very nice. So they produced a, a Zoom reading. San Diego Rep sent someone to that Zoom reading, saw it, and said, we're really interested in this show for uh, a Black Voices program that we do in the spring. And I was like, oh, cool. And so I, you know, I took some notes, and, and I worked on the script again. And when they did that, I did the Black Voices program with them. They immediately said, we want to do this show next season in the spring. And at the same time, 
Bill and Susie at San Francisco Playhouse just happened to be in touch with them. And they said, do you know Michael Gene Sullivan? We're doing this play of his. And they were like, Michael works here. He's in our plays. And we know he's a writer. Then Bill asked me to send him the script. And like four days later, they said, we want to do this show to open our fall season. Through that period, as a member of the San Francisco Mime Troupe, I've been doing other shows with the Mime Troupe and writing other plays. And the Mime Troupe members have been very involved in readings and, and development. And so then Bill said, well, does the San Francisco Mime Troupe, would you guys like to co-produce this show? And we said, absolutely. A main contribution to the production has been you know, community outreach and reaching out to audience members that the Playhouse hasn't necessarily been able to draw. So it's been a great partnership. Once you began writing it, you told me a good friend of yours, Brian Rivera, was always in the back of your mind for the character of the con. I've known Brian for quite some time. He's done, I think, three shows with the San Francisco Mime Troupe. He did the last show that we did the last summer before the shutdown. And I had also seen him in New York in uh, The King and I. He uh, went on for a major role, The Kralla Home, and he was understudy for The King. And uh, the week after I left New York, he went on for The King. And then he did the national tour, the Broadway tour of King and I as The King. And I had him in mind because like this guy would be perfect for this part. And so he did all of the readings. He did the Playwrights Foundation reading, the San Diego Rep reading, all of these different readings. When uh, SF Playhouse asked if I had someone in mind for the role, I just said, yes. Brian. And he was available because theater was just opening up and who knew? Yeah. And I was like, if we want him, he's a, you know, a nationally known actor. We have to snap him up quickly because you can't tell, you know, they might go back on the road with King and I or anything can happen. And he's been very helpful too. I mean, we started working on the readings last year and he started learning Mongolian. He got a uh, Mongolian tutor He's very committed. He's a very committed actor. Daryl Jones came along. Was he always the director? When SF Playhouse said they wanted to do the show and they were like, well, who do you want to direct? And they had, you know, different names and stuff. And we had the different directors read the script and I would talk to them. And Daryl was so passionate about the show. He, he was just like, I love this show. I need to direct this show. And he's a wonderful director. He's got a great reputation. I hadn't worked with him before, but everybody I talked to, they were like, oh my goodness, you're going to get Daryl Jones. That's amazing. And so Daryl and I met through the course of the summer, just different meetings, coffee shops and stuff, well-masked and vaccinated to talk through it. What he saw in the show was a little different than what I saw in the show and what somebody else saw in the show. What it means to different people is part of its strength. Your wife, Valina Brown, is in it. Do you give her notes or does she give you notes? <laughs> it depends. Valina and I have been super fortunate in that we've gotten to spend so much time together through our careers. There was one period for five years, every show one of us did, the other one worked on. Either we were both in the show or I directed her, she directed me, she was in shows that I wrote. We did one show where we played a young couple and she played my mother in the couple and I played the mother's boyfriend. It's super incestuous. And so we've had this great opportunity in reading the script where she talked to me about reading the script when she finally read it. I, I did not let her. She was not the first person to read the script, actually. A friend of mine, Christian Kajigal, an ex-mime trooper, was the first person to read it, you know, and I get feedback from him. I have to give things to Valina at a certain point. 
because her feedback lands so heavily on me. I don't want her to see something that's not kind of worthy of her eyeballs yet. And so, yeah, so she'll have questions for me about scripts. And, and uh, as since I'm not the director on this, I'm not giving notes, except for things that specifically have to do with the script. When you were writing the character of um, Jaden's mother, she was not in mind or she was? Valina definitely influenced the character of Crystal, the mother. She's not just like that in the same way that our son Zachary isn't just like Jaden. She did not do any of the Zoom readings. Valina, at that point, when I was doing that, we were also doing the San Francisco Mime Troops summer radio series, which she was last year and this summer. She was directing them and she was in them. And so she was very, very busy. And it wasn't until we were getting to casting this summer that uh, SF Playhouse said, well, if you could have anybody for this role, who would it be? And I said, oh, well, that would be Valina. And Valina's done a few shows for SF Playhouse. So they were like, well, if you can get her, that would be great. And so I, you know, I was like, I, well, I don't know. I, she sleeps with the writer. I got a key to her place. So I asked her about it. She thought about it because she wasn't sure if she thought was going to have the time in her life because she's also, uh, she teaches drama. But then finally she's like, you know, I really like the script. I really like the character. And so she decided to go ahead and do it. And that's been a lot of fun. And we don't try not to talk about it too much at home. We talk about the show and the the production, but not about individual things, because again, that's not my job. Very often, and I know you've seen this in a lot of plays too, a play that takes a political point. And of course, there are so many political points you could make. We've all seen plays where someone tries to do everything as if they're trying to create another Angels in America about politics. Question, how do you make sure that your play is focused and doesn't turn into a kitchen sink. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I think I'm very fortunate in. Again, being a writer for the Mime Troop, our shows are relatively short. Mime Troop shows are normally about 75, 85 minutes long. So they have to be very concise, you know, and you can't do everything. And, and you know, we'll talk to audience members afterwards and people are like, oh, you didn't talk about this issue or that issue or this. And it's like, we couldn't do everything. I, as the writer, have to be able to hone what the central theme is and then let the characters bring up other things. But we don't have to solve all the problems. And you also don't, as a political writer, I think, you don't want to solve the problems in the show meaning you don't want the revolution to end on stage because it doesn't leave anything for the audience to do. There still has to be a challenge to the audience of, you've just seen this struggle, this injustice, this these kids going through all this problem. What are you going to do? It can't be done. And that also helps in terms of keeping it small, knowing that there will be another day to write another play. What happens if you find yourself in an ambiguous position like, let's say Major Barbara, where it turns out the most interesting character is also the most evil and <laughs> pr produces the best argument. I mean, what do you do when you're writing and you find yourself heading in that direction? Well, normally I just keep going. Like this particular show, The Great Con doesn't have a villain in the right. show exactly. It, the villain is the society. It's the propaganda that we all suffer through. But if I am writing a show where I have a villain... I will make sure that the villain's argument makes sense. The villain's argument has to be attractive and make sense, not just seductive, but it has to be something that the whole audience has kind of already fallen for. 
if you're talking about why don't we take better care of the homeless? Why don't we have an actual livable minimum wage? You have to have somebody who's saying, well, there has to be a reason for people to need to be upwardly mobile. Everyone can't settle for this minimum wage. And if you raise it, it'll raise prices. You have to give that person a good argument to shoot down. And sometimes those villains are, they're super attractive. And that uncomfortableness that you want to create in the audience when they realize, wait a minute, I do fall for this. I do kind of go under the siren song of the capitalist. Uh, And it's a challenge to them, like I said. That means that when you're looking at playwrights as mentors, on some level, you'd be looking at, say, Shaw as well as, you know, August Wilson, for example. Shaw, Moliere, my focus has always been history. I mean, history and comedy. So the people that I listen to, I have read all of August Wilson's plays and all of Shakespeare's plays, but those aren't my like great inspirations. My great inspirations are comedians like, like Richard Pryor and Godfrey Cambridge and George Carlin, people who were talking about interesting things in interesting ways, or you know, watching Monty Python and reading Edgar Allan Poe, but at the same time, reading the history of the world. You know, I've got so many history books. Going back and reading them and rereading them, I'm one of those people that gets up every day and reads the news for hours. There are a lot of people who don't do that, and I understand that. They're like, oh my, it's so depressing to read the news. And it very much can be, but at the same time, it's so important to basic citizenship. And it's my job as a social commentarian through plays, I have to know what's going on. So that means that since you're writing so much for the mime troupe on a regular basis, you really have to be up to date. Do you worry about whether any of those plays, as opposed to The Great Con, would last, or is that not even a concern? Sometimes I think about it. There are some shows that I know will have an impact, and then two years later, they're not going to have as big of an impact because we're trying to be ahead of the curve a little bit. And so a year or two years later, someone goes, oh, we all know that. And he goes, yeah, well, this show was older. I wrote a show for the troupe called Freedom Land, which was about police brutality and the war on terror and the war on drugs and how the impact of militarized police, it was a farce. And that was like 2014. And it was before, you know, the protests that happened, of course, last summer after the George Floyd murder. It was influenced by the centuries of murders that had gone on. But a lot of people were like, is this really a problem? It's like I said, like 2014, 2015, they're still like, is this really a problem? It's like, uh, yes, if you read the news. And that show then last year, We uh, made a deal with Actors Equity Association to be able to stream that show for three weeks nationwide to say, here is a play specifically about this. Whereas some other shows, like I said, they, they don't have the legs after the issue has gone on. We have actually an adaptation of A Christmas Carol that we did last year that I actually wrote for the Mime Troupe. It had its world premiere 10 years ago at Occupy Oakland as a reading. And then, you know, we've been trying to figure out how to raise money to do it all these years. And then finally, last year, we did it as a radio play. And we got these great actors from Los Angeles. You know, Michael McShane plays plays Scrooge and Wilma Bonet. And we just got all of these wonderful, wonderful actors to come in and, and do it. We'll be replaying it this year 
and probably it'll probably become our yearly radio thing until we get the dough to do the live version. But it's the activist version. It's called A Red Carol. It's my adaptation. Just an aside here, when it was named the Mime Troupe, that was always kind of incorrect. <laughs> well, no, it's, see, that's the thing. It's actually not. The definition of mime, it's the exaggeration of everyday life in story and song. Silent mime is a type of mime, but mime is related to the word mimic. That's what it comes from. In ancient Greece, the actors, it was mimos. You are enacting these stories, but you're acting like someone else. You can use song. You can use dance. It's very loud. It's also, if you ever have a chance to be in England and see a panto, it's pantomime. Pantomime is what they're doing. They just call them pantos. Silent mime, just as a quick thing, basically what happened is after World War II, France didn't have a whole lot going on. They were still trying to figure out who was a traitor and who had supported the Vichy government and how to take back control of their dwindling and crumbling empire. And they had a hero, which was Marcel Marceau, who was also a member of the French underground. And so they kind of exported him. You know, look, France, we're not, you know, we're not all Nazis here. And so that idea of silent mime kind of took over, at least in the United States. The rest of the world, they know what it means. We kind of just got narrow. So when the company was named, it was correct. And we just, after having a Tony Award and Obie Awards, and we're in history books, we can't change the name. It's too late. Where did I get the idea that it was the meme troupe? Someone must have corrected me. <laughs> oh, yes, I'm sure. It, especially, especially if you're in Berkeley. So it was meme troupe, and then they changed it to meme troupe because both the French pronunciation and they didn't want people to think mime. And meme troupe, that's one of the ways like we tell how long has someone been around? How long have they been watching the troupe? If they call it the meme troupe, we're like, okay, you're 60s into the 70s. Nowadays, the word meme has a completely different meaning because of the internet. The mime troupe online, what is the website and are any of these plays from the past year and a half available for people to listen to? Actually, all of them are at sfmt.org. And if you look, go to the page of, you know, uh, we're going to actually have to reorganize our website as we've suddenly got all of these recordings. But if you search around, you look over what we're doing right now, and there's Tales of the Resistance 1 and 2, which were two big series that I wrote, radio serials based on like the old style detective story, sci-fi, horror, mystery, these different stories that kind of one of them in 2020, it was 10 weeks of stories, half hour long uh, episodes that all wove together up to the election. And then this last summer, it was also 10 weeks, but we did some standalone pieces and some that wove together. And so you've got to listen to them in order. It won't make sense. because It's a mystery. <laughs> and, uh, and that's online. And A Red Carol will be online starting at the end of November. And it'll go through November, December, and into the first part of January. And it's all free to listen to. And also some radio stations are going to be playing, have played all of our podcasts, and some will be picking up A Red Carol again. So... Tune into your local station, and if they don't have it, tell them they should carry it. Michael Jean Sullivan, one thing I found that was not on your website, how did you get involved in theater in the first place? Where did you grow up? I grew up in San Francisco. So I was uh, going to um, George Washington High School in San Francisco, and there was a young woman that I had a crush on, frequently what happens in theater, and she was in a little independent theater company at the school. 
And so I decided I wanted to spend more time with her. We were already friends, but I wanted to be around her a little more. And so I auditioned for the theater company and got in. That young woman was Valina Brown. We got married later. So I've known Valina since we were in middle school. Before that, I really wasn't thinking about being an actor. I wanted to be the funniest history teacher in the world. But I started working at the theater company. I started writing a little bit. And I uh, ended up being co-artistic director of the company. And I just started acting everywhere. And so once that happened, then I, you know, I went to college, still studying history, but I was putting myself through school. I was paying my tuition from being in plays. And at some point I went, wait a minute, this is kind of stupid. I'm already making a living doing this other thing. I should just commit to that. Why did you never, or did you at some point go to the dark side, meaning LA? Ew. Uh, it's too hot. This is true. Part of it is it's too hot. I was a wee little kid in Los Angeles. It's too hot. But also, like years ago, the idea of going to Los Angeles was always kind of there. It's always on your mind. Felina did. She's done more films than I have. Every time a film came to San Francisco, she was like in it for a while. But uh, my biggest Los Angeles experience was years ago, I was commissioned to write a biopic about Duke Ellington. I was hired. And I, they flew me down to L.A. and they flew me to New York and we had all these meetings and I was working on the screenplay. And after I finished it, uh, I gave it to them and they loved it. They loved the screenplay. And then they said, yeah, this is great. However, could you give uh, Duke Ellington a drug problem? Because, you know, the film Bird and the film Ray did so well with heroin. Could you give Duke Ellington a, a, a drug problem? And I said, no, he didn't have a drug problem. He didn't even drink alcohol. And they're like, no, but it would really work for the film. And I said, I'm not going to do that. Then they said, okay, can you write a part for Scarlett Johansson? Because we can get Scarlett Johansson for your movie. And I was like, there's no part for Scarlett Johansson. They're like, she could like have an affair with Duke Ellington. I was like, that didn't happen. I'm not going to write a part for some, you know, well-known white actor in this screenplay that is essentially about a black man and his son. There's just not a part for her. And so the negotiations went back and forth and back and forth. And then finally I pulled my script and left because it's not worth the money. Hollywood isn't about telling like a true story. It's about a story that will sell. The least powerful person on the, a film set is the writer. But now in this brief two to three year period, when such a script might actually survive, would you go back to it? Because it sounds like right now, an all-black cast without Scarlett Johansson and without drugs could work. Oh, I would definitely. But I also know that there was also a, an actor who had just gotten uh, an Academy Award. He was going to play Duke Ellington. And everyone's like, ooh, this guy's so great. And then he said, well, I want to want to bring my own writers in to rewrite my role. And I was like, No. You can't do that. It's done. And like I said, in theater, the playwright, everybody listens to the playwright. The playwright is the god of the situation. They've created the world. you know. And it might change and things happen and people get notes and stuff, but they're all trying to tell this particular story. In film, the director's in charge and the director will rewrite scenes. They will reorder scenes. They will change things around with the producer until the film makes no sense whatsoever and is not what the writer intended. So I would love to have this script done and I would be happy to do rewrites and change things and all of that, but I want final script control. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, right. So I'm not, and the thing is, it's like, I used to tell my students, you know, when I teach playwriting periodically and I'd say, you know, I've turned down 
big money and gigs and stuff like that because it's just money. It's not worth it. It is not worth it. Somebody asked me, well, how do I buy my soul back if I sold it? And I was like, well, the key is to not sell it in the first place. You know, I mean, yes, it's difficult and you can get in a situation where you have to have the money and you need the money. And I understand that. But unless you're in that situation, just don't do it. Don't work with people you don't like. Do projects that you're passionately interested in, things that you feel like are going to make the world a better place, not things that are just going to advance your career. Maybe. Because then once you've sold out, you can't really get it back. I noticed that in all of your works, you use theater as activism. Has that always been the case or was it somewhere along the line a light bulb came on? That's pretty much been all of it. I was telling someone the other day, I, they were like, what's the first play you wrote? And I couldn't remember. I had to think about it. And the first play I wrote, I wrote in the fifth grade and it was about school funding. In the play, the uh, city of San Francisco had cut a bunch of funding for the school, so the students all did a walkout. That was the actually first play I wrote. So I've always been about using theater as an activist tool. There are a lot of different ways to be an activist, and there are a lot of people that can use different talents and brilliance and genius in different ways. It just so happens the tool I use is theater, and that's you know, why like being a member of the San Francisco Mime Troupe has been so important because that's all we do is revolutionary political theater, never silent mime. The idea is to give information to the audience, to entertain them, make them laugh, and then inspire them to go out and be part of a revolution. Michael Gene Sullivan, uh, The Great Con is on now. Do you have another play coming up in the next year? A Red Carol, which starts at the end of November. I go into rehearsal in a few weeks to be in Twelfth Night at SF Playhouse. And then Great Con will open in San Diego in March. And then somewhere around there, I will start rehearsing the remount of Ragtime at Theater Works while I am writing the next Mime Troop show. And I don't know what that is yet. What character are you playing in Ragtime, or is it obvious? No, no, I'm I'm not playing Cole House. I'm playing uh, Booker, Booker T. Washington. And I'm playing Toby Belch in Twelfth Night. That's two very different people. You've been listening to an interview with Michael Gene Sullivan, who is the author of the play The Great Con, which is playing at San Francisco Playhouse through November 13th and is also streaming through the Playhouse. And you can find out more about that by going to sfplayhouse.org. And one more thing from you, Michael, what is the website for the Mime Troop? It is sfmt.org. I'm Richard Wolinski on the Bay Area Theater Podcast. Mm-hmm.